Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. Hello again, folks. It's been a while. It's been a solid month, in fact. And the last time I recorded, I was actually doing another of these. There are a few reasons for my absence. If you've been following me on social media, you'll know that I've been taking a bit of time, much needed time. Um, partly I'm kind of resetting and replanning the future. Details on how you can become a part of an exciting new chapter on the Napoleon Assist to appear at some point in the future, not right now. Um, and partly I've been devoting pretty much every waking second to planning the War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon conference and launching the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. Hashtag ad, hashtag shameless plug. And yes, I'm going to continue with said ads and shameless plugs. Um, you may remember that a little while back I did an episode where we switched things around and, and Marcus Kreb took over the reins of hosting and interviewed me and Ed Koss. In a few days, I'm going to re-up that episode uh, so that you can remind yourself about what it is the organisation seeks to do. I'm not going to go into that now because that's not the point of this episode. But just to flag that for you, that will be appearing in the near future. And if you're interested, I will be putting up details about how you can find out more about the charity, both in the notes to this episode, but also crucially, the details will be in the episode coming uh, at in, in just a few days time, actually, it'll be out um, early next week. In relation to the second hashtag ad, hashtag shameless plug, I've been talking for quite a bit about what is going to be one of the biggest gatherings of Napoleon enthusiasts and experts of this year. It's called the Second War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon Conference. It's being organised actually through the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. Now, conferences, they tend to intimidate some people. Don't be intimidated. It's, it's not exactly like a Napoleonicist party, but a lot of the people who've presented on that show in the past are going to be at the conference. Um, plus, there'll be some other people that you perhaps might not be familiar with, but who are utterly fantastic. You know, people include 
William Doyle, Matilda Grieg, uh, Will Fletcher, Beatrice de Graff, Ed Koss, um, Conrad Kinch is speaking. I could sit here and give you the whole list. I won't, because again, that's not the point of this episode. But if you would like to know more, firstly, two things to bear in mind. One, yes, you can attend in person should you want to, but this is 2022. We live in a post-pandemic world and we've got with the times. So you can attend online. Now, only one of the three rooms that's uh, going on at any given point in time will be live streamed. However, we are very pleased to have agreed with our venue, the National Army Museum, that we will record all of the talks in some form, either video or audio, and then we will post them online and they will be accessible to anybody who buys a ticket, whether they buy an in-person ticket or an online ticket. So... If you buy the online ticket, which costs £25 per day, and there are two days of conferencing, then you get all of the talks for that day. Um, all in, we're talking over 30 hours of talks. So it's quite good value for money. So have a little think about whether or not that works for you. Details in the description to the show. But I have gone on far, far too long about things that are not remotely related to today's topic. You can tell I haven't been doing this for a solid month, can't you? Just by the fact that we're taking this long with the intro. Um, but what are we covering today? I'm going to call this one The Forgotten Marshal. We are looking at MacDonald. And who better to help me through this peculiar enigma that is why MacDonald has been forgotten? Because as we're going to see, his record actually isn't bad. You know, there, there's good stuff in in what's about to come when we're discussing what he did. Um, but who better to help me through this than my majestic Marshall correspondent, Rachel Stark, who frankly lit a fire underneath this podcast with her brilliantly received episode on Davu, which is heading straight up the rankings to be one of the all-time favourites for the show. Not remotely surprised. Um, but it went down seriously well. In fact, it's probably the best single day of downloads we've had on this show in a solid three or four months. So she knocked it out of the park last time. She's going to knock it out of the park again. Rachel, welcome back. Really looking forward to the second instalment of what I think will be a, a regular feature. We're just going to keep pushing these out monthly. Why not? Yeah. The, the public love it. We love to have a little nerd out about the marshals. I learn a huge amount. You do brilliantly. It, it needs to keep on going. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me back again. Uh, it was a no-brainer. It was, I mean, frankly, I hadn't finished recording the last episode before we kind of agreed we were going to keep on doing these. So, um, no, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back. And I'm sure our listeners are going to be delighted to, to hear your voice again and, and hear us kind of discuss McDonald. Um, Let's let's start with the the big elephant in the room. Um, that that title, that clickbait, if you like, title, the Forgotten Marshal. Why, why push him to the periphery? Is this a character thing? I think McDonald occupies a very sort of niche space, very much in the middle of all the rankings. In that. He wasn't a brilliant general. He had none of the sort of flashes of genius of Messina or Davu, um, but he wasn't a poor general either. He was not as flamboyant or as dashing as Ney or Mura. So he, his story's got none of that drama. Um, equally, he's he's not 
uh, unlikable character. He's he's not unkind. He's not malicious or spiteful or greedy. Um, but I think crucially, he's missing a lot of the key points, a lot of those seismic moments in Napoleonic history that so many of us like to discuss, because he was sat at home for five years while you know the rest of them were at Jena and Ulm and Friedland etc and while a lot of the the marshals who fought in western Europe are balanced out by interest in the marshals who fought in the peninsula he did serve in Spain but he never faced Wellington so he's sort of missing from every kind of key little discussion cluster um and because he's considerably less dramatic than some of the other marshals, he sort of occupies a very sort of small area of grey in the middle of pretty much all the rankings and gets passed by. So not as flamboyant as the likes of Neura, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. We should no. just kind of throw that out there. Um, yes, I am going to pile on the Mura hate because, well, it, it's Mura and I have issues. Um, and people... Listen to this, particularly one of my patrons, Todd Campbell. Uh, there you go, a little shout out for you, Todd. He he spent a solid evening sitting down with me and chewing over my opinions on Mura. Um, and I'm sorry to say that he didn't convince me to change my mind. Um, so let's find point the Mura. Missing in the fight against Wellington, lacking the genius. I see what you're saying. He kind of, if you're going to do a Venn diagram, he kind of falls in the gaps. Not well, there are gaps in a Venn yeah. diagram. I do know that, people. I'm not an idiot. But you get what I'm saying. He doesn't really fit any particular... Sort of outside. Yeah. All the circles. Yeah. Um, this is really interesting. Another thing that's interesting is the name, MacDonald. How does a guy of Scottish heritage end up fighting for Napoleon? So as, as the name kind of gives away, he the, the paternal ancestry was not French, it was Scottish. His dad, who was a guy called Neil McKeegan, who took the name MacDonald, he was uh, a member of Clan MacDonald, um, was born in South Uist. He was born in a place called Taubeg. And his father actually went to France um, to be educated for the priesthood and then returned to his, his native Scotland. His father, Neil, um, was a Jacobite and a supporter of um, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and in the aftermath of Culloden, actually served as Bonnie Prince Charlie's guide as he evaded the Hanoverian troops. So he sort of guided him, um, you know, away from, from Inverness to, towards the Isles. And it was a, a distant cousin of his, Flora MacDonald, who would eventually get them um, completely to safety. So... Neil, he is, he's an exile Jacobite now. He follows the prince to, to um, France, where Marshal MacDonald very acidically notes in his memoirs, he saw uh, Neil installed in Ogilvy's Scotch regiment, then never gave him a second's thought ever again. He settled initially at Sudan, married a French woman, where they had uh, four children, two of whom survived infancy, one of which was the future Marshal MacDonald. Um, who depended on some records, some records call him Jacques, some records call him Etienne. Um, he had several names, of course, and um, then moved to Sancerre, where there was a sort of exiled Jacobite community, and that's where he made his life. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Um, the first thing I do when I prep for these episodes is I pick up Chandler. 
Um, and I, I was curious about this thing about Bonnie Prince Charlie just kind of dropping him like a, a, a I, I don't know quote how, how you drop something something heavy you know not interested yeah um thanks for getting me out but you know yeah. I mean I mean talk about use and abuse um but then I'm not the greatest fan of Bonnie Prince Charlie but that, that's a conversation yeah. for another day um okay so we've talked about the heritage we we've covered that logical question early life what do we know about his early life I mean he's coming from a military family is it sort of obvious that he's destined for the army? Because you said no. that actually there's that priesthood connection um, for his dad. So which way does he look like he's going to go? His father had intended his son to go into the seminary and become a priest. And the, the aim was that he would take a, a canonry at Campoi. And that was certainly the direction he was headed in until... Um, in McDonald's own words, if, if you want his life story in his own words, read his recollections. He had started reading the classics and he said that Homer just set his brain on fire and he began to imagine himself an Achilles. And after that, it was just a foregone conclusion. He was for the army. So he went, he was sent to a military school in, in Paris under the Chevalier Pole. And he, he was a very diligent student. He read very widely on the history and the science of warfare. Um, they tried to make an engineer of him, but he failed his maths exams. And, um, but was, was otherwise a pretty model student, very, very di uh, diligent. And he got his first commission in my Blas regiment serving in Holland. Once that was disbanded, he was offered a cadetship in Dylan's regiment but it meant taking a reduction in rank. He could, they could only take him as a cadet, but he was sort of consoled with the promise that he would soon be an officer. And that was certainly true. Interesting. I mean, just a, a lesson there. When in doubt, pick up a history book. Uh, if you're looking for inspiration, pick up a history book, although don't necessarily go into history because the pay and the job opportunities are scarce. Um, <laughs> You might sense just a slight hint of bitterness in, in my, just a, yeah, just a tiny wee bit, uh, Rachel uh, mimes to the, the camera. Yeah, we'll, we shall move swiftly on. Um, but yeah, interesting that, you know, all you've got to do is pick up Homer. Um, and, you know, neither the first nor the last person ever to say that. Mm -hmm. um, so they picked up a, one of the classics and that was it. They never looked back. So he's in this position where he's sort of struggling to, he's, he's competent quite clearly and diligent, um, but struggling in terms of making his way. Is that in part a patronage issue and the whole Ancien Regime society and that limited ability to claw your way up the promotional ladder if you didn't have people whispering in the right kinds of ears? It, it was a little bit. And again, that kind of illustrates McDonald occupying this very sort of weird niche again because he wasn't on Sion regime or he didn't come enough from the right background like Bertie or Davu etc really he could have started climbing the ladder but he wasn't Sult or Masena who effectively started right at the bottom he again occupies this very sort of unique middle ground where he was an officer but right at the bottom and sort of very slowly beginning to to try and make his way up the ladder he certainly wasn't from a wealthy background he couldn't have bought commissions at the drop of a hat sure and then of course a certain event called the french revolution 
starts to happen and he does well doesn't he talk us through this so yeah he he was serving in dylan's regiment and then um that was disbanded he was promoted to lieutenant in 1791 that was the same year he married his first wife um had a small period uh, in action and then recalled in 1792 where he found himself in a kind of funny position because he liked polite society he was a very enlightened man he was very cultured in his taste he liked good conversation music theater so he'd got on very well with the officer class of the Ancien regime and they'd all more or less cleared off and emigrated and they prevailed upon Macdonald to get out while you can and he turned it down now ostensibly he says in his memoirs that it was because his wife was pregnant and very close to giving birth and he's in his words I cared nothing about politics I'm not sure you can be part of something as earth-shakingly important as the French Revolution and not care either way I don't know if that was a bit of rose-tinted glasses looking back or if it was just that he recognized there was opportunities for promotion either way he stayed and he went from lieutenant to general in two years I mean talk about uh, there's not climbing the ladder that's jumping up it I mean that is kind of an indication that you might be quite good at your job if you're because I mean let's uh, people might go well you know opportunity and you know luck and all the rest of it but actually no consider what the 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 environment's like particularly as you move further through the French Revolution and it becomes increasingly radical actually you've got individuals kind of prowling effectively looking for people screwing up and then passing it off as treason so to climb that fast comes with its dangers um i mean sure there are rewards if, if you get it right but so therefore that's an indication that you're doing quite well in relation to others yeah at a time when there is this opportunity yeah if you look at the balance of probabilities if you were too proactive and you risk too much and failed you went to the scaffold if you were too cautious and didn't display enough revolutionary zeal they deemed you a coward and a traitor and you went to the scaffold so it was walking a very very precarious tightrope of showing enough zeal and enough passion but not throwing your men's lives away but also you know looking at the risk evaluating the risk deciding when it was right to you know, to launch an attack when it was right to reserve. And yeah, it, it did not bring incompetent men to the fore. If you look at any of the marshals, and I know we can debate who was the best and who was the worst and who was admirable and who was an idiot, but the reality was all of the marshals earned their baton in one way or another. They were good generals. And the revolution brought good officers to the fore. I mean, that is the fundamental point, isn't it? Because we will sit here in a few months time, no doubt. And we'll talk about the likes of Messina um, and you know his rise and, and the way in which he was given opportunities because of proven ability. And so if it works for Messina, so it also works for somebody like McDonald. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you make a really good point. You know, this isn't an accident actually that we have this period where France is able to be so dominant militarily when it's working a system, particularly during the revolution where those who are good, who really shine, actually get given the opportunities that they deserve. This is completely different to the whole Ancien regime system where incompetence 
doesn't matter half so much if you've got a title mm-hmm. and patronage at court. Um, and so, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be quite as shocked as we sometimes are that France manages to produce such incredible mm-hmm. uh, commanders. And some of these men are incredible. That's, that's, that's not an overstatement um, in a short space of time. We should talk character as well, I think. I think that this is a, a, an important point to, to make. And now is probably a good moment to make it um, in terms of the nature of the guy. Because we're going to go on and sort of talk about who he did and didn't get on with and how that might have proven to be a bit of well, it did, in fact, prove to be a bit of an issue with him in terms of some connections. Um, but I, I get the sense that, and, and granted, this comes from reading Chandler which we might want to sit here and debate, but obviously Chandler's the, the logical starting point. Um, Chandler makes the case very, very strongly that MacDonald is fundamentally an individual of integrity. It's about service to the nation, number one. Then it's about service to the nation's leader, number two, um, which is an, a different way of doing things compared to many during this period. Um, and that lack of almost a Machiavellian instinct sort of puts him at odds with a number of people because they're looking for the agenda because everybody's got an agenda, except that he doesn't. And so it's almost, and I'm obviously being sort of flippant and colloquial here, but it's almost like he's sort of deemed a bit weird. You know, why doesn't this guy kind of want more? Is that a fair line of argument, do you think? Yeah, I would say fundamentally he was a man of, integrity he could as the vast majority of the marshals were be difficult to get on with he he was a man who I mean we spoke in the last episode about how Davu was willing to call a spade a spade as we would say and MacDonald was very much in the same vein he said what he believed was right whether or not that was something the listener necessarily wanted to hear he was not a yes man by any any degree um but you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. He was focused on what was for the good of France. He was never an ardent Republican, certainly not in the way the likes of Brune or Lefebvre or Augereau were. He was never an ardent Bonapartist like Davout or um, Marmot or Murat. He was very much about, he was quite a pragmatic man. I care about France, you were in the head of France I am loyal to you. Um, and I, I think that's kind of sums up his attitude to the revolution. He did say sort of later on to members of the Bourbons, actually, and in his life that he had applauded the men of the revolution, the Robespierre's, the Dantons, etc., the Carnots, but he approved of the philosophy. He liked the idealism of it. Um, but yeah, he was a very measured, I don't think he was given to sort of great grandiose excitements um he's very measured guy he was as i say very enlightened in his tastes he he was a cultured man he was a man who appreciated good art but that did mean he could be incredibly condescending and snobby about the marshals who had come up from the the bottom as it were um and there's a two anecdotes from his recollections are jumping immediately in mind there's one when he interacts with Ogero who's come to uh, inspect his men and he comments about just how much glitter Ogero's wearing and it's, it's very pointedly compared to his and his men's simple uniforms you know Ogero's a dandy he's dressed up he's prancing about showing himself off we're doing what needs to be done we're not caring about how we look and the other one was about Marshal Lefebvre who very much illustrates 
the whole sort of revolutionary story of the martial art, you go from nothing right to the top. And he, it's, it's it, honestly dripping with condescension. And I'm saying that probably with a degree of bias because I have a massive soft spot for Lefebvre, but um, he says the guy had no appreciation of literature, no knowledge of it whatsoever. And a play had been put on by Voltaire and Lefebvre got quite caught up with it and he's applauding and he says to Marshall Macdonald, uh, the man who wrote that is he here because he thought it had been written specifically for that performance and Macdonald's very condescending, how could you not understand Voltaire? Um, so he's a, he's a good man, but he has his faults, he can be prickly, he can, he's got a good opinion of himself certainly and you you that's a very strong theme in his recollections, he's very convinced that he always did right and he, he says I have very little to blush for in my entire long career, um, which I don't think anybody can purely claim, um, but on the by and large of it, I would say a good man. Interesting. This is this is very interesting. I mean, we'll get to one thing where there's a there's a big what if um, in relation to his claims that he was number one in consideration um, and Napoleon was number three in consideration for the Brumaco. Um, we will get there in in due course. Um, we should rewind a little bit, though, and talk about particularly de Maurier, shouldn't we, um, and, and his connections there, but also Moreau and, and Pe- is it Pichigrou or Pechigrou? I always Pichigrou, get I think. Well, that's okay. how I connect it, but I'm not saying that's yeah. right. Um, what's the problem there? And I, I say that because some people won't be aware of what the issue is, but just talk us through that. So I've seen McDonald's career summarised as unlucky, and I think... Unlucky, you could maybe say he was unlucky in that the people he tended to form very good relationships with or or become attached to or work well with had a nasty habit of falling into disgrace. Um, He was initially an ADC to de Maurier. Um, He, just as he was promoted to captain, um, and now, of course, de Maurier deserted and was found to have been communicating with the Allies in secret. Um, and when he went, MacDonald found himself viewed as a suspect. And he had to act pretty quickly, actually, to save his own skin. He, you know, had to protest very loudly and talk about his own career and his own sort of devotion to France, etc. Um, and then one of his very strong early friendships with, with Moreau. And they worked very well together. They, you know, had great respect for each other, etc. And... It, the French bachelor eventually went sour before Moreau's career did, but the problem was he'd also served under Pichigrou, had gotten very well under Pichigrou. Along comes Napoleon, who, you know, then there's the Cadudal conspiracy and Pichigrou's connected to that. Moreau is alleged to have been um, involved and McDonald's connected to everybody and he's sort of tainted by association. Um, he very again very loudly states his case and I don't think he approved of what was was done with Moreau he didn't feel it was right and this is despite the fact that their friendship has since gone sour because he he felt Moreau had stiffed him out of a command Um, but he's tainted by association I also don't think it helped that he had slept with Pauline Bonaparte Um, and Mm. if you're trying to get in your boss's good book shacking up with his sister for a long weekend is probably not a good a good idea for there was the story that they'd 
locked themselves away for three days, ordered in enough food, then shut up the house and weren't to be seen for three days. And then it's not really going to endear you to her brother, is it? It's it's not ideal. Um, I mean, it is like a, a basic thing, I gather, that's agreed in business. You just you just don't mix business and pleasure. And, you know, you boundaries, man, boundaries. Um, this is a, an element of his character, actually, isn't it? That he's, uh, I mean, again, kind of quoting Chandler here, but he's not viewed as a womanizer like some of the marshals during this period, but nonetheless, he did like the company of women. Um, and here you have one example of that. Um, but yeah, not, not the best move, I guess. No, um, not going to endear you very much to Napoleon at the time, certainly. It's really not. I gather Talleyrand might be part of the issue as well here. That, And this is what I was kind of alluding to with the, the Machiavellian streak, you know, certainly Talleyrand, a Machiavellian individual yeah. to the absolute hilt. You can make the argument, and I certainly would, that Napoleon fundamentally was Machiavellian. Now, if people want to debate that with me, come find me on Twitter. Um, we'll have that discussion another time. But I would actually make that case that mm-hmm. Machiavellian as well. And because Macdonald isn't Machiavellian, it's almost like Talleyrand doesn't trust him because he doesn't understand him. And so th- there's this suggestion that actually Talleyrand tries to implicate Macdonald when this situation blows up. Yeah, so he had briefly, um, once Napoleon had become first consul, I mean, Macdonald made himself very useful to Napoleon during the Brumaire coup, um, despite claiming he was first choice. And he was rewarded um, by, Napoleon made him ambassador to Denmark. He hated it, um, but he very much felt Talleyrand was determined to get him out of the way. Now he had in his recollection, he said he had spoken once very harshly to Talleyrand and he felt that was revenge. And he certainly says he prejudiced me against the prejudiced the first consul against me in my absence. And he very much held Talleyrand responsible for that whole period of inaction. He thought he had basically been whispering poison in Napoleon's ear. And that was why Napoleon had never viewed him as someone he wanted to admit to the inner circle. It is, I mean, there are two questions I want to ask, but the, the first one that we have to deal with is, is that fair? Um, it, I mean, what about Talleyrand's perspective? Because the, the point about Talleyrand is that he's a, a fingers in many pies type of individual. Um, and in terms of people that is on that are on his radar, is Macdonald important enough to, to be somebody that Talleyrand's going to machinate against? And that's kind of tied into my next question that I want to ask which is about this this yeah. thing about was he a contender for I'm okay. I'm not sure I mean we only have Mac, it's only McDonald's word for it in his his recollections and he it's important to think as well he didn't write his recollections with a view of them being published he was elderly well not elderly but older when he had his son and his aim was that he was going to write his military career down for his son who could understand the decisions that he made and why he'd done what he had done and so that his son could know his story effectively so he he certainly didn't seem to be writing it with a view to sort of publicly announce I was wronged um although there is a very strong undercurrent of that in the early the early stages of his career we've only got his word for it I don't personally I don't think he was important enough to be on Talleyrand's radar. He was at 
he was a pragmatist he was doing what needed to be done and I think he'd far bigger fish to fry I genuinely believe that unfortunately he'd been connected to Morrow he'd been connected to Pichigrew he'd shacked up Napoleon Bonaparte none of that was putting him up you know in Napoleon's estimation and I think Napoleon always viewed him at that stage as being tainted by association he was a moral man not a Napoleon man Mm, absolutely I mean it does seem quite a grandiose claim doesn't it that it's a conspiracy from Talleyrand himself and and when you pause and consider Talleyrand's nature and Mm. at some point I'll do an episode with somebody on Talleyrand because boy what a fascinating individual he was um, the Irish despair yeah exactly I mean you need a, a 10 part or something don't you um yeah th- th- this idea that oh he had a vendetta against me I, I think is just a little bit too convenient when you consider McDonald's career and where he was but I, I say all of that with you know the, the healthy dollop of skepticism that comes with spending some time reading history but if his claim about having been the first choice prior to Napoleon is true, then you could make a stronger argument that actually, if you're going to sift people and um, try and get the sort of the threats to the, the new consul out of the way, then maybe there'd, there'd be more there, which just makes me kind of question whether or not that's fair because the point is that he claimed he was first choice do we have any corroboration of that no again we have mcdonald's word he claims that they went first to him then tomorrow and lastly to napoleon who of course sees the opportunity with two hands but again many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. balance of probabilities is it likely if you look at mcdonald's character he was a good army officer he was diligent he was he behaved with integrity he was honest he certainly wasn't grasping or greedy or underhanded but it takes more than honesty to succeed in politics as we can see in the here and now and did he have the charisma of napoleon no did he have a you know, we, we, I've had these discussions on Twitter before as part of my Marshall Monday thing, you know, which Marshall would you want to follow into battle? And people say, you know, oh, I think I know in my head it should be Davout, I know in my head it should be Messina, but it's Ney, it's Murat, it's um, it's Lan. Is McDonald the kind that's really going to inspire people to, you know, get up and get things done? I I don't know. I'm, I must admit, I'm fairly sceptic 
uh, skeptical about it and I want to feel like that's maybe just a bit of an exaggeration and a bit of self-aggrandizement. I mean my gut reaction and you know just to emphasize that is a gut reaction rather than having spent hours trawling through this and, and the weeks and months to be able to be confident in an assessment is that you know, look this guy isn't a Napoleon right and the one thing that I will always say is that in 1799 and people in the anti-Napoleon camp actually take issue with me over this but I, I do believe that in 1799 actually Napoleon's the guy France needs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yes there have been kind of little blips in his career that you sort of go hmm but by and large up until that point I don't really have an issue with the guy um, and he certainly Napoleon certainly had the energy he as you say you know he had the charisma and he had the vision and then it's with time that in my personal view that you know I, I blow more kind of cold on on the guy um if you put the two side by side and, and you ask me to pick one I'm not sure there's a contest right mm. and, and that's kind of what we're trying to assess here um so he ends up with a basically a five-year gap in his career doesn't yeah. he he um, sits at home. He goes home to his chateau. Um, he marries again, is very quickly widowed for the second time. And you know, he wrote that he he was he was in a high fury about it. He was incensed that in 1804 he wasn't included uh, on the list of the marshalette. He certainly felt he'd more claim to it than some. I, he didn't name names, but it's, he certainly felt that he'd a better claim to a baton than Davu or this year because they'd never had truly independent command at this stage um and he said that you know he he grew more and more angry at the news of every great victory because he knew he should have been there and he wasn't just worried for his own lack of opportunities he had two daughters by his first wife then a daughter by his second and the the daughters of his first marriage were, were growing up and you know their connections had been forming you know great marriages or or making their way in society in the new imperial court he and his daughters were stuck at home and they were effectively in disgrace and he was worried about what that meant for them not just about loss of opportunity for himself but his daughter's marriageability their future what was going to become of them and it was not a period of relaxation certainly it was he was very unhappy during that time but crucially he felt he was in the right and that Napoleon had wronged him. Yes, which goes back to what we were saying about, you know, the, the nature of the guy. That yes, this guy believes that he should serve, but mm, we are getting just sort of sort of a hint of delusions of grandeur, perhaps, in amongst all of this. So what changes? Because as we're going to discuss, this is the guy who gets the baton on the battlefield. The only yeah. one of the, I believe, of the yeah. post-1804 bunch to do so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sure, you can say, well, Marmont post um, the, the 1809 campaign, but the point is it's not a battlefield no. inverted commas commission. So, mm-hmm. so what changes, first of all, for him to be in that opportunity? Um, I think by 1809, Napoleon needed every good commander he had. He was fighting a war on multiple fronts. By this time, he's in the peninsula. He's in Western Europe and... His troops are more spread out, the marshalette is more spread out, and he needed good commanders. And he invited Macdonald to serve with Eugène um, in the army of Italy. And that's when, when they marched to join Napoleon's forces for the Wagram campaign, that's Macdonald's uh, moment to shine. He marched his men 60 leagues. 
in three days, which meant that it was an average of 43 miles per day. But this was in midsummer heat as well. This wasn't in sort of mild weather. This was in blazing sun and then turned up at Vagram and bore, you know, his men took a hell of a hammering at Vagram, but crucially pinning down the, the Austrians to as, as we kind of established with, with Davu's men in the last episode, to march that length of time for, for three days solid, to then turn up on the battlefield, to then bear the brunt of the, the Austrian fire, that's a fair old achievement, even by the standards of the time. And this is where there's commonality with Davu's style, right? Which is that he's one for the nuts and bolts of soldiering for discipline for drill and we were kind of um talking about this earlier weren't we when um Ogero pitches up and he's kind of going well look you know Ogero turns up and he looks he looks fine but you know we, we do the proper job of soldiering which means that I focus on getting my men drilled yeah. and not so much about making them look good on, yeah. on the parade ground um, so is that a reflection of his style or does he not actually have the time to instill that amongst his men? Because there's always that kind of question about how long it takes to trickle down. I don't I don't know if he necessarily had a huge amount of time, but he certainly led by example. Um, he was a man who would share the privations of his men and he personally led his men at Vagram as well. He didn't shy from from danger. He didn't ask his men to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Um, and as I say, he sort of formed his men into this sort of three-backed, three-sided, open-backed square and marched towards the Austrians. And they took, I mean, the losses were incredible. There was huge numbers of casualties. Um, but they pinned down the Austrians long enough for, for Napoleon to achieve his overall strategy. And which is why post-Vagram, Napoleon rode up to, to MacDonald and says, you know, being Napoleon and, and loving a grand statement here on the field of your triumphs um, where I owe you so much I make you a Marshal of France you've long since deserved it Marshal MacDonald let us be friends hereafter and MacDonald's quite touched by that and he says yes till the end and he's thus moved from a man Napoleon never trusted to one of for the time being one of the sort of inner circle of Napoleon I mean, how long does that last, right? Because this is another thing that we discussed before, didn't we, about, you know, the the credits that certain people do and don't get and the battle honours that are attributed to different individuals. And um, I'm now desperately trying to remember, and it's been too long since I've been to Leon Galide, to Napoleon's tomb, to see whether or not Vagram is one of the victories that surrounds um, his many sarcophagi. But I, I'm just wondering, you know, do, does it last? I cannot remember. Nor can I. Somebody biggest, will. It's one of the biggest battles numbers wise, so I'd be surprised if it wasn't. But I haven't been since 2014, so that's a that's a while. Uh, I mean, it's even longer than that for me. Um, by this point, somebody will have taken to um, Google and tried to to work it out. Um, Certainly, that's exactly. Somebody will tell us on Twitter. Yeah, certainly, that's what I'm now trying to look up myself uh, as we do this. But I mean, I mean, the the point nonetheless stands, doesn't it? Does Napoleon kind of stick with that? Does he bring Macdonald into his inner circle, or is this one of those things where it, it's nice and it looks flashy, but in terms yeah. of what happens in the months and years to follow, he Macdonald finds himself more and more pushed to the periphery. 
he he certainly does well by him in the immediate aftermath. He's made um, Duke of Taranton and he is given a, a very handsome endowment of something like 60,000 francs. He's, you know, he's well rewarded. And that's one thing I, I will say for Napoleon. He was consistently a very generous rewarder of where he felt he'd been rendered good service. But ultimately, as I said very much at the start, Macdonald was not a yes man. And he was not a man who would say, that's a brilliant idea when it was felt that it wasn't a good idea. He was no flatterer. He was not somebody who who would bow or you know toe the line if he felt it wasn't right. Um, and then so he was he was sent to Spain in 1810, and like every other marshal who served in Spain, he hated it. He was following Ojo now. Ojo had been incredibly harsh brutal in fact in, in Spain and Macdonald tried the the other approach but he fundamentally didn't believe in the war in Spain he he felt that they were the oppressor he did not feel that they were the people you know the liberators as it was it was sort of framed in propaganda and he hated his time there and he was I think very grateful for the very severe attack of gout that sent him back to France he by and large missed the worst of Russia. He um, was given the 10th Corps, I think. Yeah, the 10th Corps. Um, he commanded mostly Prussian and German soldiers, just his staff were French. And they escaped almost the worst of it because they were on the left flank and they they had to hold, hold that. Um, and as the retreat actually, they joined the retreat, the retreat, the surge of Prussian nationalism meant all his troops cleared off. And he was just beside himself with fury and slightly, um, you know, well, a little bit of overstatement. He called it the most despicable act of treachery in history. I think that's marginally over egg in the pudding. But he he certainly didn't experience the privations that Ney or Davu or Sancerre or Udino had experienced in Russia. Didn't mean he had a comfortable time, but certainly less traumatic than the others had. Sure. I've just checked the internet um, and I can confirm that Bagram is one of the honours that okay. surrounds uh, the battle honours, the, the, the named battle, shall we say, that surrounds um, Napoleon's tomb so read into that what you will folks um, the, the likely PTSD that comes from um, having to swim the, El the Elster um, after well actually no, let, let's should we say a little bit more about Leipzig um, and what he's doing there before before we get to that um, yeah he had fought in 1813 um, and then at Cashback, I always pronounce that incorrectly, the catchback against Blucher, it was a total disaster for Macdonald. He had 13,000 men killed, 15,000 men taken prisoner. It was a really incredibly bad defeat for him. And it's it's interesting that um, Marbo claimed that Macdonald's real weakness as a general was that he was so nuts and bolts, he would sort out his plan of attack prior to the battle but then he didn't change it he was not an adaptive general he had his plan and he followed his plan 
And regardless of the macro environmental factors of the weather, of the position of the enemy or the factors happening on the battle, he didn't change or he certainly didn't change quickly enough. He allegedly took responsibility for the losses. Excuse me, at the time, but in his recollections, he blames his subordinates, he blames bad weather, so he makes quite a lot of excuses for himself. But his one of his worst errors, or certainly he he felt one of the worst errors was Leipzig. He was, along with Marshal Poniatowski, one of the men left on the other side of the river when the bridge was born uh, blown prematurely. And they were left with the choice, risk becoming prisoners, potentially being massacred, jump in the river, try and swim. MacDonald was comparatively fortunate. He did manage to reach the other side. Poniatowski, we knew, drowned three days after getting his baton. But MacDonald found himself staring at the Elster and watching his men being swept away. And he could hear them screaming and drowning and crying out to him, Monsieur le Marchal, save your men, save your children. And he, he just said, I could do nothing but weep. He was just overcome with fury and despair and just unable to do anything. He couldn't articulate how he felt. He was he just stood and sobbed. And he says in his recollections that he found himself in a very black place after that. And even all these years later, he wrote his recollections when he was, um, I think, in his 60s. He said he, he still felt that black despair and many, many times he had heard those screams. Monsieur Le Marshal, save your men, save your children. And he'd never been able to get over them. So I, I genuinely do believe he had suffered with what we would now call PTSD, especially after Leipzig. I mean, I've got kind of a, a chill just listening to you retell that um, because it is so horrific. So uh, you wouldn't be surprised, would you? Um, it, it is horrendous. And um, blimey, did you describe that viscerally? Um, yeah, that's horrific. Um, yeah. And it, I think it, it did mark a turning point. He, as I say, he'd never been a devout Bonapartist, certainly not in the way that the other marshals were. But he'd, he'd, he'd gone to Napoleon afterwards. He was soaked. He was frozen. He was, he was still in tears. And he says Napoleon had offered him neither kind of comfort nor refreshment, had received him fairly coldly. And I think that marked a turning point where for MacDonald, Napoleon was perhaps no longer what was best for France. And Napoleon, uh, MacDonald, sorry, he was the man who cared about what was good for France. And that's kind of telling in the, the post Wagram ditty that MacDonald was France's choice. Oudinot was the army's choice and Marmont was friendship's choice. MacDonald was the choice for France. Um, and I think it became very clear to him from that point on that what was good for France, it was no longer Napoleon. Yeah, and we can see that particularly in the end, well, <laughs> end game part one, because as we all know, there are, yeah. there are two phases to Napoleon's inverted commas end game. Um, we'll, we'll deal with the second part um, of that endgame and McDonald's role within that in, in just a moment, um, or lack of role in that, to just kind of issue a little teaser of a spoiler there. Um, because this is a guy who puts his money where his mouth is, right? He's one of those who says to Napoleon, time is up and you need to go. 
Napoleon's comment on this is kind of interesting because he kind of then says, well, McDonald doesn't really like me, but I'm going to send him to negotiate with you anyway when he sends McDonald to talk to the Tsar. So talk us through what happens there and and why why McDonald, who goes, because uh, he doesn't go alone, it's worth saying that, but he is one of the, the leading um, voices in yeah. that discussion. Why does McDonald think that he needs to go and why don't some of the others... Um, perhaps lead in that scenario? I think, again, Paul um, MacDonald was a man who was willing to speak truth to power. And in 1814, Napoleon didn't have enough men like that around him. Lahan never, you know, held back from it. He was dead. Davu was willing to criticise. He was in Hamburg. And he was, I think, of the, the men who were who were left or the men who were with Napoleon in 1814, it was Nay and MacDonald who were willing to actually, you know, have the, the moral courage in a way to go and say, enough's enough. Our armies are spent, our, our men are have had enough. And it's, you know, Nay says the, the army will follow its chiefs. You need to stop. Enough is enough. And it was it was they who persuaded Napoleon to drop the instrument of abdication. And I think if we go back right back to the start of the episode when what we said McDonald wasn't grasping, he wasn't underhanded, he wasn't out for himself. I think that's probably why Napoleon was able to send him to the Allies. And, and that's what he said, you know, McDonald does not like me, but he is a man of honour and of high ideals, and I know he will stick to his word. So though he'd never, it was a, you know, personality traits he'd never particularly enjoyed about McDonald. But he knew that's what he needed in that time. He needed somebody who wasn't about greed and self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. It was somebody who would do the right thing, behave honorably and stick to his word. And, and Colin Kerr certainly said, um, if I can just read this, um, he'd been ambassador in Moscow for two years and was impressed by McDonald. But for him and the Tsar's respect for his own word, I do not know what would have happened to the emperor or what he could have secured. For accepting the Duke of Toronto and myself, His Majesty had not a single defender in Paris. That fact ought to um, be an aid in reflection on the part of princes whose, for whose whole trust is in their flatterers. For Macdonald and I, in our respective capacities, were certainly the two men whom the Emperor loved the least and to whom he had shown the least favour and who had repeatedly shown him the most opposition. But it was the men that Napoleon needed at the time. He didn't need yes men. The end game was there. There was no further use for yes men. There was nothing to be gained from Napoleon. No more titles, no more money, no more honours. They needed people who would get the job done. Yeah, it's that old adage, isn't it? Of cometh the hour, cometh the man. And certainly from what we've discussed about the guy's character, he he was, so it seems, the, the person to, to have those chats with the allies about this is how we end it. Because as we've said the whole way through, France first, leader second. Um, but despite all that he came back to Napoleon's side afterwards and stayed with Napoleon until it was all over and Napoleon actually said to him you know I I never really liked you you know I I, I didn't shower you with honours in the way that I did some others certainly there are others better rewarded who've now left and yet you who I've given comparatively so little to are by my side I appreciate your loyalty far too late and he did give him, uh, did give him, sorry, what he claimed was a sword of Murad Bey um, from Egypt and sort of parted with him on, on good terms, 
um, and encouraged MacDonald to take the vow to the Bourbons, which he then did. He did. And this is where it gets more interesting, doesn't it? Because we keep talking about what's best for France and um, MacDonald's inclination to always favour that. And this, this is always one of those moments where I kind of respect the individuals who have stayed with Napoleon um, for the long haul up until the point where to do so any further would have been sheer foolishness and then decide when Napoleon comes back, actually, no, enough was enough. We need to stick to um, what, what we had initially agreed at the end of all of this. And so, you know, he doesn't, MacDonald doesn't feel like an individual with a, a short memory in 1815. No, and I think he was a man who put a very high value on when he gave his word, he meant it. He had given an oath to Louis, and he stood by it. He escorted Louis and his party, you know, to the border, saw them in, in safety, returned um, to Paris. And he, he was actually very ill through the 100 days again with gout, which is a recurrent illness in his life. And he ignored Napoleon's summons. And he felt justified in doing so because he had made his promise and he would adhere to it. And it was it was that simple for MacDonald. He'd given his word. He would honour it. And that was, a, that was a real character trait for him. He put value in his integrity and he, he stayed true. What happened about him ignoring his summons? Because with the best one in the world, ignoring a summons from somebody like Napoleon comes with his, you know, you're rolling the dice at that moment in time. It's not exactly a risk-free venture. Was there any kind of rumblings that this was a risky business or was he just kind of allowed to, to stay in his chateau. He, like, like um, Udinot very much behaved similarly, um, had said to Napoleon, you know, I won't fight against you, but I won't fight with you. I'll serve no one. Leave me in peace. Um, and they, they were, by and large, just left left alone. Um, and as I say, McDonald's, he would have been no use to either side anyway, because he was extremely ill during the, the campaign. So what's life him like post- um, post Napoleon, if you will, so, post 1815. Does he get rewarded for that loyalty? Yes, he was um, initially offered the position of Secretary of War, which he turned down um, and recommended Sincere in his place, but with a very backhanded compliment that Sincere is very diligent, but he's considered a bad, bad fellow. He doesn't get on with people. Um, and then he was asked to take over command of the army of the Loire from Davout. And Macdonald, being Macdonald, said to Louis, well, okay, but on two conditions. That I have carte blanche to act as I feel is right. And secondly, and very crucially, I will not be an instrument to move against any individual or be used as an in instrument to move against any individual, i.e. his former comrades, and I would still less be used to push anyone to their execution. So that was that was real integrity as well, because he, he wasn't one for blowing with the wind. He stood firm in his convictions, whether that was to Napoleon or to Louis. And he helped some Bonapartist officers escape um, a, a fate similar to me. He got them out of France. So again, there, there's a very big difference in battlefield courage and moral color, courage. And MacDonald didn't have just have the former, he had plenty of the latter as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is something that comes across 
quite clearly, isn't it? I mean, you said it yourself, you know, he's somebody who's prepared to speak truth to power. Um, yeah, respect. Yeah, I, I think then, it is going to be coming from, from all of our listeners for that. Yeah, um, he was made Arch-Chancellor of the Legion d'Honneur and he held that position for nearly 20 years and was a member of the Chamber of Peers. He he retained his, his marshal, obviously, while a lot of his peers were struck off in disgrace. Um, it was actually largely through his intervention and, and also Oudinot that Davu was brought back from disgrace the couple of years before he died. He MacDonald was a very strong force in persuading Louis to relent against Davu and and MacDonald felt really atrociously about what happened to Ney as well. He felt that Ney was his own worst enemy but that he certainly hadn't deserved what had happened um, and his voting record as a member of the Chamber of Peers, he was, he was a Liberal man, he didn't sort of become an arch-royalist because it was convenient, he didn't become a, a royalist zealous, uh, a zealot against his former comrades and uh, peers, he went with his conscience, voted as a Liberal and led a very quiet life, he, he had a fairly tragic personal life as well but as he as he got to um older age he went to visit his roots in 1825 he came to Great Britain and visited his father's birthplace in Uis where there's now a plaque to him um which I would like to go and see fairly soon um and had a bit of a grand tour he was a he was a cause celebre he was a famous name he was one of Napoleon's marshals and went to the battlefield at Culloden and sort of was was guided around it and shown where the attack had happened and expressed his disapprobation. How could the Highlanders have engaged the enemy in such a place as this? You know, he had a real sort of soldier's viewpoint. This was his father's battlefield, but how could they have fought here and sort of thought about how he would have done it differently? Um, And he was spoken of very warmly. He then went on to send money to his family in US, largely for the rest of his life, he created annuities and stuff for them. Um, he addressed them in sort of very faltered Gaelic because he had no English and the family had no French. So they spoke in sort of very faltering Gaelic, but he 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 was very warmly received by them and had treated them very kindly. And he took a handful of uh, US earth back with him to France and asked that it be buried with him. So he's buried with uh, a handful of earth from his father's birthplace. Um, and I guess just to kind of sum him up, his in his own words, he left this message to his son. Um, I have never had reason to reproach myself, nor have I ever had to blush for any circumstance in my life. I received an untarnished name. I transmit it to you, feeling sure that you will keep it pure. My conscience during a long and active life has nothing to reproach me with because I've always followed three safe guides, honour, fidelity and disinterestedness. And I like to believe that my guides will be yours also. So I think, yeah, not the best of the general, no. The most interesting even of the generals, again, no. But I would say you, if you were drawing up a list of marshals who were not only great men, but good men, you can safely stick McDonald's on that list. Absolutely. We spend a lot of time, don't we, discussing the morality and, and the questionable morality of certain people who, who grab the headlines. And we will talk about plenty of those types of individuals as this series continues. McDonald, sure, not flashy by any stretch of the imagination. Competent, yes. Fundamentally, I think, a moderate in the vast majority of the different elements of a person, you know, in terms of his political views, in terms of his character, um, in terms of 
um, just just everything almost. I mean, mm-hmm. Let's let's set aside the the you know Pauline Bonaparte incident. Um, that that perhaps is less an indication of moderation. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad that we've spent uh, an hour and a bit just kind of talking about this guy and shedding light on a, a guy who is forgotten because mm-hmm. he he falls down the gaps. He's not sort of shiny enough in any particular area to be sort of a magpie mm-hmm. magnet, if you will. Yeah. Um, when it comes to whatever you like from your figures of history. Rachel, thank you so much for this. Um, you're coming back. We've got a yeah. series to, to deliver um, now. Can um, I just say one more thing, if that's okay? So Dalderfield said of McDonald that it was a great tragedy that there were no bagpipes at McDonald's funeral, because there were, obviously. Um, he was buried in France, and it was to be hoped that some would be there to welcome him in the afterlife. So I've taken the liberty of writing McDonald some bagpipe music and I've written a slow air in his name and if you want to hear it you can look for it on my Twitter page I'll retweet it so it's up the top. So he did get some bagpipe music just a couple of centuries too late. I mean a shame that it took two centuries but if you can send me the link to that tweet I will stick it in the show notes folks so underneath each episode there is actually a description scroll down if you're on a phone whatever you have to do to listen to it it'll be there um, and I'll make sure that it is nice and clearly labelled, and you will be able to click that and go straight through to hear that. That's a really nice touch, Rachel. Thank you very much for that. Um, yeah, shame. Do we know what state his grave's in, out of interest? He is in Perlachez, as far as I am aware, um, with the vast majority of his comrades. Um, as I say, I'd like to get to the, the Uist monument for him, but um, most of the marshal's tombs, I think, are in reasonably... Good condition. Yeah, I'd imagine the Fondation Napoleon's probably, you know, done it, done a, a thing or two to, to help that situation. Um, but yes, back to to McDonald and, and to the marshals. Rachel, thank you for another blistering run through. Um, a, a really poignant one as well. I'm still kind of, I've still got a shiver down my spine about that that incident with, at the Elster. Um, but I'm not sure something's moved me that much in quite a long time when it comes to historical work. So thank you for sharing his McDonald's story in such a visceral um, and and relatable way. Um, I, I'm liking the fact that we're putting the humanity into these individuals and we're not just sticking them up on a pedestal and going, oh, look, weren't they brilliant? Um, we're covering the good with the bad. And so far, I think we've done some fundamentally good eggs um in this story i think perhaps we need to uh bring some controversy for the next one um but on that note on that little teaser we will be back in a month folks rachel thank you so much for your time folks you you can find rachel on twitter at bookish rachel please bear in mind that rachel is spelled r-a-c-h-a-e-l so it's the the scottish spelling um there and we will be back with another Marshall episode in a month. A big shout out as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Rory Muir, Liam Telford, Ger Brown, and Graham Swydenbank. 
My Commander Patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches Patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Antony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you for your patience as I go through this overhaul. And as always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.